I next met with Ms. Una Hopkins, a nurse practitioner heavily involved in breast cancer clinical trials. And to begin, she presented a case from her practice, a 58-year-old African-American woman who had surgery for a very high-risk ER-positive HER2-negative breast cancer, which was 8 centimeters in diameter, and had 11 of 14 nodes positive. The patient understood her precarious situation and came looking for a research alternative that might improve her prognosis. She knew what was going on. She was information-seeking. She wanted to know, okay, well, what do I have to do now? What are the next steps? So she was ready when she came to us. What was her life situation, her significant others, work, etc.? She actually had a lot of stressors in her life at the time. She had just changed jobs. She was a legal secretary, a paralegal, and had lost her job and refound something new. Her oldest son had just graduated from college, so she was actually pleased that she had paid for those bills before the job loss. And then she was newly divorced, so she really had a lot of stressors, three stressors, financial, uh, her oldest son graduating college, which, you know, is a good stress, but it also can be a bad stress, too. You mentioned that she was an information-seeking person. Was she out on the web and printing out stuff and bringing it to you, or how was she getting information? Yeah, interesting enough, a lot of our patient population now bring to you so much information from the Internet. And if they don't go to reputable sites, you spend a lot of your initial visit trying to take care of fears that are really unrealistic because they've put themselves into a category or self-diagnosed or worked through something that really is probably inappropriate. So she comes back to you after surgery, and we know because the tumor was so big, she is a very high risk for recurrence, plus the fact that she has a whole bunch of lymph nodes involved. What was the discussion like once you got the pathology back and you started to decide what might be considered for systemic treatment? Well, because of the fact that she is such a high risk and discussing with her at that point, she was really ready for her therapy, and she really wanted it to move forward, so... We offered her standard AC Q2 weeks followed by weekly Taxol, which is pretty much a standard therapy for this, for an ER-positive patient. And then we offered her, because she was such high risk and the data on the bevacizumab was looking very, very nice, and because we're a clinical research site, we certainly offered her a clinical trial, and that was one of the ones we offered her was 5103, which uses AC followed by Taxane, plus or minus bevacizumab placebo-controlled. And so she understood her risk was pretty high and actually consented and enrolled into the 5103. That's interesting. Can you talk a little bit about the background behind that study that basically we saw encouraging results for bevacizumab or Avastin with advanced disease, and this study is now bringing it into the adjuvant setting to hopefully see whether maybe we can improve the cure rate. What are some of the issues about bevacizumab and about participating in this study that were discussed with this woman? Well, we also as a site participated in E2100, and that was actually a very positive study using bevacizumab in the metastatic setting. And for the most part, in most of our clinical trials and cancer trials, they generally will start out using something in a phase one setting, and then they move it into a metastatic setting if it shows promise in any specific disease site. This was one of the first trials to move the bevacizumab into the adjuvant setting because of its anti-tumor growth factor pieces. So the drug itself doesn't allow the tumor cell to get the blood supply that's necessary. Because it was such a well-tolerated drug, 
with hypertension being probably the most important side effect that needs to be managed. And the oncologists had to become very, very good at (laughs) their primary care practices, such as using hypertensive meds. And patients in arm A just received adromycin, cytoxin, and placebo bevacizumab along with their taxane. The arm B received adromycin, cytoxin, and then their taxol with a bevacizumab. And then they stopped at the point of the taxol completion. So they got four cycles of adjuvant bevacizumab. And the third arm, arm C, was bevacizumab along with their taxol, their AC plus their taxol and their bevacizumab. But those patients actually, we wanted to answer the question also, would a maintenance do very well? And what was this woman's thinking as you discussed the trial? I guess the issue here is that even with adjuvant chemotherapy and hormonal therapy, since she was ER positive, the cancer relapse rate is going to be very high. And I guess this is a chance to maybe try something different to maybe bring it down. Is that what she was thinking? Right. That's exactly what she wanted to do. She said, I just need to close this chapter. I need to make sure that I've done everything I can possibly do. She was okay with the fact that it was placebo-controlled, and she said, you know, there are some times you just have to trust. So the end result is presenting this to her, that the AC plus T was the standard of care, and we already knew what the recurrence rates were that, and we discussed a little bit about that with her, and she was comfortable with that. So we were going to give her, at the very least, the standard of care, and she was very comfortable with that, and that's trial design was excellent with respect to that. And actually, this strategy of adding bevacizumab to chemotherapy is something that's also being done in colon cancer in clinical trials and lung cancer in clinical trials. And I guess one of the things that's really appealing about it, as you mentioned, is that I guess for almost all the patients, the bevacizumab really doesn't impact quality of life. It's you know an antibody like Herceptin. And is that what you observe, that it doesn't affect how people feel? It really doesn't. The patients have very, very little side effects. I mean, even the hypertension, it's actually us, the clinician who picks up on that. It's very rarely where they will demonstrate or explain to you symptoms of hypertension. The proteinuria is just something we actually look for as clinicians. So they don't know that they're experiencing these things. And the 15 milligrams per kilogram every three weeks is not an impact into their life schedule either. So it really does fit in very nicely for them. Now, in terms of how the trial works, you mentioned there are three randomization arms. So what was she randomized to? So she got arm C. So she went on to maintenance bevacizumab. So she was randomized to bevacizumab and specifically the arm that not only gives it during the chemo, but then right out to a year. Absolutely. How did she feel about that when she found out about it? She was fine with it, actually. She was pleased. So she got the maximum of what this trial had to offer. So the minimum is the standard of care. The middle of the road is bevacizumab during your taxol treatment. And then the maximum would be bevacizumab with your taxol and maintenance for a year. So how did things go as she began the chemotherapy? I guess the first thing was the AC. How did she do with that? She had no problem with the AC. And actually, we chose the classic AC, which is the Q3 weeks, because I think What's old is new again. I think we're sort of moving backwards to extending so that we don't have so much of the cardiac toxicity with the AC. 
I'm not really sure where the change is coming or where it came from, but I think we used a lot of dose-dense AC for a long time, for at least three or four years, and now they're opening back up that opportunity to go back to a Q3 week schedule. So it really wasn't a medical issue that helped her define that, but more a timing schedule. So she was starting a new job. She wanted to make sure that she wasn't taking too much time out of work. And the Q3 week schedule worked for her. So that's how she did her AC. She had absolutely no issues at all. Her baseline EF was 64%. And that was on a mug and not an ego. So her ejection fraction, looking at her cardiac status, was completely normal, as you might expect for a 58-year-old woman. I assume she had alopecia. She had alopecia during her AC. Her hair growth started to come back around cycle five of tax hall. How was it to, I mean, I can imagine she's lost her job. Now she's going into a new job. She's losing her hair. How did that go at work? I think that she, you know what, when we do education right from the get-go, when you put a patient on a clinical trial or in any case, whether they start chemotherapy without a clinical trial, you certainly do a lot of teaching I think most states actually require that you have a consent for chemotherapy. So the visit can be three visits long, and part of it is explaining the disease and letting them understand what it is that they're about to embark on, take it home, digest a little bit, and work through their schedules. The second one is basically sometimes drilling home to them exactly what we talked about and then honing in on what their decision might be for which kind of therapy. And then the third visit is very often just taking the choice that they've made and making it concrete for them. So helping them understand what we're going to watch for them, whether it be a MUGA scan, how is a MUGA scan done, what does it look like, how long does it take, how often are we going to look at cardiac toxicity, how often are we going to draw their blood, what are we going to draw their blood from, do we need a Mediport for this, what is a Mediport? Oh, and you know, there's so much language that a patient has to understand before they even get started whether it's a trial or any kind of chemotherapy, they do come to you sometimes pretty well educated. She came with a lot of information from a lot of very reputable sites, the Why Me site, which I think has recently changed, and that's a very good one, National Cancer Institute. So she actually came seeking a part of a clinical trial. So they come with information, and you give that to them, and you help them through. So by the time visit three comes, They've consented for their therapy. They kind of understand what kind of a schedule they're going to go into, and they are a little bit understanding of the side effects they're going to have. So with her, she was embarking on a new job, so we gave her information on wigs and how to manage some of the toxicities and side effects. She wanted to do her therapies on Fridays because those were her work-at-home days, so she was able to come in and... The other reason for a classic AC was the infusion unit actually is not open on a Saturday. So we gave her new Lasta if we had to do the dose dense. So for her, the choice of an every three-week regimen worked better into her schedule. So it's a matter of taking the patient, understanding what their schedule is like, and then moving them forward into what's going to work best for them. So she didn't want to do new Lasta. So. so where is she right now in terms of her treatment? Well, we did get some permission to utilize the SO307 study, which is a bisphosphonate study, out of the information that came out. Very, very impressive information using bisphosphonates in the adjuvant setting to decrease the amount of recurrence in the bone. So the two studies worked together, and bisphosphonate use in the adjuvant setting post-chemotherapy was going to be allowed. 
Now, in this lady's case, she was on the maintenance bevacizumab. So maintenance bevacizumab and the bisphosphonate therapy were not contraindicated. So she enrolled onto the SO307 trial, and that's open randomization, and she was randomized to abandonate. In cycle eight, or your week eight of your weekly Taxol therapy, you are given your Taxol and your bevacizumab, and then you're unblinded. And the unblinding process allows us to know whether you were on arm A, B, or C. So until that point, the patients are getting an effusion, but it could be a placebo or bevacizumab. That's correct. And so she didn't know which way she was going to go, and she was on arm C, which led us to maintenance. So maintenance starts at the end of Taxol. One week later, you start the bevacizumab, and it's at a 15 milligram per kilogram dosing schedule. And you do that once every three weeks for a total of a year. Now, you mentioned the fact that she went on another clinical trial, a SWOG or Southwestern Oncology trial. This other one you mentioned was an ECOG or Eastern Cooperative Oncology trial. But this SWOG study picks up on, I guess, one of the most exciting things that's happened in breast cancer in the last few years, which is a report that came out of an Austrian group at the last ASCO meeting that showed that women who received bisphosphonates, and in that case it was zolindronic acid every six months, had a pretty impressive drop in their cancer relapse rate, like 35% fewer cancer relapses with you know not too much downside with bisphosphonates. I mean, we use them all the time. This study that she went on, I guess, sort of tried to anticipate because there were other trials that had suggested this in the past. So this study sort of anticipated that people were going to be getting bisphosphonates and now, I guess, is trying to figure out which one would be the most effective and the least toxic. Can you go through the three bisphosphonates? Are you aware of that? Yes. So SO307 looked at all of the bisphosphonates, and they tried to answer the question based on the hypothesis that the use of bisphosphonates has decreased the bone mets in the patient who has been treated adjuvantly for breast cancer. So the three arms, so they use the two bisphosphonates that are approved here in the United States and one that is approved in Canada and Europe, which came off of the NSABP B34 trial, and that's the use of clodronate. So the three arms in the study are ibandronate, which most commonly we know as Boniva, and clodronate, which is the approved drug in Europe and Canada, and Zometa, which we all know and have used for a long time in bone mets in the metastatic setting. And what was she randomized to? So she was randomized to ibandronate. Now, the abandonate dosing that they use in this trial is different from what we know and what Sally Fields has actually been able to commercialize for us, the Boniva, once a month. She's using the abandonate daily. And how's she doing on it? Any side effects or problems? Again, in the bisphosphonate trials, you look for the two most common side effects there are dental issues or onchonecrosis of the jaw and or renal problems. And so... You dose-modify Zometas. We're very key on dose-modifying the Zometa dose based on a creatinine or a creatinine clearance. And that's a creatinine clearance is the calculated dose based on the weight and the fact that the patient is a female and it's their serum creatinine. But in this study, they are just looking at the serum creatinines, and they have to be within normal limits. And they're looking at them every month for the first six months, then every three months. So... Even the patients that are receiving the Zometa, they only receive it monthly for the first six months, and then they go on to the every three-month infusions. 
So a little bit different than the trial that was discussed in ASCO, but very similar principle, and they'll do this for three years. Now, we already knew that bisphosphonates can be helpful in terms of bone density, which is an issue with hormonal therapy, and I want to talk to you about the kind of hormonal therapy that she's receiving And I guess what we've seen is that, of course, we see bone loss with some of the hormonal therapies, particularly the aromatase inhibitors, although even with some oxygen, we can see some bone loss. And we know that bisphosphonates can counteract that. Did she have a bone density study done? She had a bone density for baseline, and she had a normal bone density. She did not have any osteoporosis or osteopenia. And we did put her on a hormonal agent, anastrozole. And how did she do on the anastrozole, and how is she doing on it? Well, her taxane finished in August, so we put her on at about three weeks after that. And she also had, because of her lymph node status, also underwent radiation. So sometimes the radiation oncologists differ with us. They like to start the hormonal therapy after radiation. She started it concomitantly. And she didn't really have any abnormal issues. She had muscle aches for the first, uh, the myalgias, for the first month or so. She was able to manage them. She's a female that actually does really well with self-management. So you have to tell her what she's going to experience, and she will do very well with helping herself through that. I mean, she's different from the patient that you tell them, and they come in a couple months later, I just can't continue this medication if it's going to make me feel this way. And I think that's where a little bit of our adherence or compliance issues come in with the long-term five-year hormonal therapies. What is the spectrum of what you observe in terms of side effects with, let's talk about the aromatase inhibitors, since by far that's the most common hormonal therapy used right now in the adjuvant setting. What do you see? You know, it varies from patient to patient. Some patients have no issue at all. Most patients will have some myalgias that last for the first two, sometimes three months. So when I prescribe a anastrozole or hormonal agent, I actually generally bring my patients back monthly for the first three months before I actually put them into a follow-up schedule of every three months. One, I want to make sure that their liver enzymes are okay and that they're metabolizing the drug appropriately. But two, I would like to try to reinforce with them that this therapy, although that their visits with me are becoming much more infrequent, that their therapies continue so that although I'm not giving them a chemotherapy agent every week, that the medication that they're taking orally every day is so very important to maintaining their risk reduction for recurrence. And I guess a lot of people would argue that the hormonal therapy in a patient like this actually is maybe even more important than the chemo in terms of the overall impact on the tumor. I agree. And, you know, it's interesting because we see a lot of the compliance data and adherence data, and I think those are two buzzwords that are being used a lot, especially in the nursing literature. And how do we get patients to be more compliant and understand that this therapy is for their life? I mean, it is. And now I think with some of the other studies that are looking at longer-term hormonal therapy, I think we have to, as nurses, really be very, very keyed in to the type of patient that you're prescribing to. I think that now we have a lot more of the electronic prescriptions, so we're able to keep a little bit better track of when your patient, you know, I don't write a prescription for any more than six months of therapy. And when the patient calls the front desk and asks, well, I just need my Femara or I just need my Aromadex or I just need my Examestane, 
I say to them, okay, well, I'll give you a one-week supply, but you need to be into the clinic to see me. Because there are a couple of things that we actually need to be responsible for, and that's liver enzymes and side effects. You know, those calls are the great ones, actually, because those are the patients that are actually taking their medication and calling because they don't have any more. It's the patient who gets lost in the follow-up, and whether it be, and we've just come through holidays, and I knew the patients I was supposed to see in December, and you know what, I know that they didn't come in. So if I know that they didn't have any more than six-month prescription, I know that they're just about out of them at this point. So those are the patients you just need to really keep a very, very close eye on. And we started something very new, very recent, actually. We just got some grant funding for a medication clinic, and we have identified some of the high-risk patients. And some of the high-risk patients are those that are on the long-term hormonal therapy at the point of two or three years because we utilized the literature that said that's where compliance or adherence drops off the most is at the two- and three-year point. What are some of the questions that you ask patients in trying to figure out whether they're taking the medicines, and if they're not, why not? Well, you know, that's interesting depending on which therapy they're on. So if they've had side effects in the past, I always open up my visit with that because sometimes if they know that I care about how they're feeling on a daily basis, they're more open to help me understand are they taking it daily. I also, because I was very often part of the tamoxifen role and we see a lot of the premenopausal females, the risk of DVTs and those kinds of things, and part of the education that goes on in those early visits talks about not being on your medication if you're in bed for the flu for a week at a time, or if you're laid up because you unfortunately broke your hip and had to have it replaced and you're not in your activities of daily living. So a lot of that is teaching, and the questions that you probe your patient with are not necessarily, are you taking your pill every day? That sort of gives a negative connotation to say, okay, I'm in charge, and you have to tell me the right answer, because nine times out of ten, they're going to answer you, of course they're taking it. So you ask them about some of the side effects. You ask them about some of the other drugs. You ask them to recall their medication record and what it is that they're taking. What time of day are they taking it? Is that okay for them? Is the morning time okay or are they experiencing more side effects? And how are they tolerating their side effects and how are they managing it? So those kinds of probing questions give you a little bit more insight into whether they're doing it or being adherent to their medication schedule. Some of them will often admit to you at that point, well, I took a vacation two weeks ago and I decided I wasn't going to take my medication because I didn't want to feel all those muscle aches. And that kind of gives you an in to talk to them a little bit about their adherence. What do you see in terms of the spectrum of arthralgias and muscle aches with AIs and how do you deal with it? I have never seen a grade four arthralgia myalgia, but I have seen a grade three. And because I work so much in clinical trials, when I say grade three, I grade it based on NCI's common toxicity criteria. Can you go through the grades? Sure. So a grade one is mild aches and pains, and they don't really interfere with function. A grade two myalgia or arthralgia actually interferes in a mild way with their activities of daily living. And a grade three severely impairs their ability to work through their daily functions. So if my patient is having difficulty getting up the stairs in a four-story walk-up, that's an impact to their activity of daily living. So for me and that patient, it becomes a grade three. 
for the patient who's having difficulty because they really can't get their fingers or their hands fully around the toothbrush that they're using, that may be something that's mild and we can work through that issue as getting a larger handle toothbrush or you work through some of the other symptoms as well as using some of the anti-inflammatory drugs such as Motrin or Aleve. I'm curious about your perspective on how utilizing the archetype in clinical practice has affected the way you take care of people. I know that you've been in oncology now for, I guess, about 10 or 11 years. So you've seen the pre-oncotype era and now the post-oncotype era. I would imagine you must, from what I can tell, it's really been dramatic in terms of how it's impacted in terms of lots of women not getting chemo who four or five years ago would have gotten chemo and actually a bunch of people who get chemo who might not have gotten it because they know it's going to provide a great benefit. What's your sort of global perspective of the way archetype has affected clinical practice? It's very true. I mean, one of the clinical case studies when I'm talking about oncotype that we talk about is a presentation of a 29-year-old female who comes with a very small tumor. It's found incidentally on clinical exam. You know, you wouldn't normally send your 29-year-old for a mammogram, but based on this clinical finding, you do. And you find a very, very small one-centimeter tumor on mammogram. You go in, you biopsy, you take it out, you do surgical manipulation. It comes back node negative. There's no sentinel node. So you work through that aspect of things on a very young patient. Now, this patient, if I've just told you all of that, that it's ER positive and the margins are negative and it's a small tumor, but she's 29 years old, some physicians may lean towards giving her every opportunity, which they would include chemotherapy. But now you have an option to do an oncotype DX testing, and that would give you another tool to make a decision, an educated decision. So I don't think it makes the decision, but I think it gives the oncologist, the physician, another opportunity to look at something else, another piece of information to put the puzzle together. And so this patient, you know, turned out to have an oncotype score of eight. And so she went on to hormonal therapy only. So did we save the insurance company some money for chemotherapy or did we save the patient some latter toxicities possibly? You know, she's 29 years old. If we gave her the traditional AC plus D, did we save her some cardiac toxicities when she's 50? Who knows? But the end result is it was another piece of information that was given in the case and we were able to manipulate her therapy appropriately. It's kind of interesting, too, because a lot of the other variables that we consider, like the tumor size and nodal status, sometimes you sort of see a difference. In other words, you might see a tumor that otherwise looks like it's very favorable, but yet the archetype is high and vice versa. Do you all utilize the adjuvant online model and get numbers from that and discuss it with your patients? I know a lot of practices do. Yes, we do. And again, another tool for the physician and the clinician to put into the explanation or the thought process in helping that patient come up with a plan of care that's going to be reasonable for them too. I've heard people talk about sort of anatomy versus biology and thinking about the oncotype in terms of what it looks at. For example, the proliferation rate, which, you know, it kind of makes sense that if the tumor is rapidly proliferating, maybe it'd be more likely to respond to chemo as opposed to the data that's looked at more traditionally as an adjuvant online, like the tumor size and nodal status. And I guess some of the tricky situations are when you see a conflict where, you know, maybe you have a larger node negative tumor, but yet a low recurrence score. 
How do you approach those kinds of patients? Well, the Oncotype is a wonderful tool in that sense because adjuvant online isn't truly just working through some of the statistics of what we know already about the disease, whereas the Oncotype is the 21 gene assay that is looking directly at the tumor and its personalization of your care because it is looking at your tumor, not someone else's and not statistically about. I mean, we have the assay for a certain perspective of patients because we've done the assay on those patients, which is the ER, PR negative patient, the HER2 new negative patient, and the early stage with no nodes. So yes, we're looking to expand the assay to a different aspect or patients that we would think are, are a little bit more at high risk because it's a wonderful tool to use that for the early stage patient.